0: Amen. Please remain standing, and we'll go, we will return now to the Gospel of John as we begin the final chapter. I'll be reading chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 14, and these are the words of God. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "'I am going fishing.' They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Holy Father, with these words which you gave to us through your apostle, minister its truth into our hearts and minds, that we might know you, and the plan you have given to us, your church, may we know better how we should live as your spirit directs us here, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, oftentimes you kind of come to the end of chapter 20 of of, um, the gospel of John and it kind of feels like it's the end. It does end with that verse that we've, we've turned to over and over again, that that Jesus uh, that John wrote these things, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Kind of sounds like a good ending to, to the gospel. We've been going through the gospel of John for a little over two years, 56 sermons so far. I'm sure you remember them all <laughs> deep in your mind and heart, right? Um but but many people actually try to argue that chapter 21 was a later addition to the gospel that maybe John even didn't write it um, what's interesting about that there there are lots of different texts in the scripture where there's some debate because there's some some of that text is missing in some of the or the or earlier documents and or they might be missing missing in certain traditions What's interesting is in this, with when it comes to this chapter, it's found in all the copies. It's, it's not missing anywhere, um, and yet there's this kind of ongoing um, textual criticism about whether or not this is uh, is in the original Gospel of John. So they do so without any kind of textual evidence at all, but simply on a number of speculations. It seems like chapter 20 ended well and and accomplish. John basically says, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and you've, you've now heard that all that needs to be heard so that you might believe. There it is, you know, mic drop. We're all done now, right? But, you know, it's kind of like, it reminds me of if you've read through the book of the Lord of the Rings, um, when you get through the, this amazing adventure that goes through three um, books, and, and finally the ring is cast into the, uh, in, into the molten to, to die and, or to be destroyed, and, and finally all of, um, uh, you know, all of this created kingdom has been, has been saved and established, you, the book should end, right? And yet there's this other chapter, there's this other section where the, all the hobbits return to the shire. And and a bunch of other little things happen that at first glance don't seem to be necessary to the story and yet help tie several things together. I think this is a little bit of what's going on here as John is is writing. Again, we have a section here that is only in um, in the Gospel of John. It's not in the synoptics at all. The, the other synoptics all basically only talk about the appearance of Jesus, really on the day of the resurrection, um, uh, and in several accounts that take place. Um, there's, there's the one account in, in Matthew where he gives the Great Commission. That's when they're up in Galilee, so that's a different type. But other than that, the, the other Gospels really just handle the, the the accounts on the day of the resurrection, John is going to record these other appearances that take place as well. We saw one already in the previous chapter, and now we come to what he says is the third appearance of Jesus. So, John seems to take us for the apostles who are going to carry on the ministry of, of, of the kingdom back to where it all began, kind of like Tolkien takes us back to where it all began in the story of the Lord of the Rings, back to the Shire. And so this is back to Galilee. Now, um, throughout my studies through the book of John, if you, if you were to ask me, you know, what's one, if you only got one commentary on the gospel of John, I'd, I'd probably direct you to Richard Phillips' commentary um, on John. And, and with regard to this passage right, right, right here, he says about going to Galilee, I think it's helpful to bring all of this to mind. What, what had happened in Galilee? Why would we go back to Galilee? Well, remember, that's that's the area where Jesus grew up. That's Nazareth. That's the area where where, where Jesus um, it's his home. It's his hometown itself. It's the home region for him. Um, Phillips writes Galilee was the region where Jesus had proclaimed his kingdom in holy words and mighty deeds gathering his new Israel before returning to Jerusalem to bear the cross After the resurrection, it is probably here that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time as Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 After this first appearance, Jesus climbed a mount where he gave his great commission as we're told in Matthew 28 It was on a Galilean hill that Jesus had spoken his Sermon on the Mount. It was in towns such as Capernaum, Cana, and Nain that Jesus performed his notable miracles of healing, deliverance, and raising from the dead. On one shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus delivered a man from the legion of demons that he had sent into a herd of swine to perish in the waters. On the other shore, Jesus performed his great miracle of feeding the 5,000, after which he gave his bread of life discourse. It was in these waters that Jesus called Peter, James, and John to leave behind their fishing nets and become fishers of men. And it was on that excursion where he told Peter to come and join him, and Peter walks in the water. It's not surprising, therefore, that Jesus regathered his disciples in Galilee, recalling their hearts to the kingdom and gospel they had learned from him in their native land. And so back to Galilee, back to where it all began. We're told here is, is to begin to set it up for us that the seven, seven of the apostles are mentioned that they are they, they find themselves in Galilee, just as Jesus had predicted, in fact. And, and, and it's kind of interesting to note that that prediction was first given during the time of Peter's denial, or, or the prediction also of Peter's denial. In, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. It's just... Jesus has a way of just kind of being a downer at times. Um, You're all going to be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's kind of a downer because he knows us. He knows our hearts and our minds. He knows how feeble we are. He knows how prone we are to wander. He knows how prone we are to give in to temptations. Um, he, he knows our hearts, and, and, and so he says this even to his disciples, these apostles that have been walking with him all these years. He goes on and says, um, uh, quoting, quoting the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then he says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he, he says, we're going to be going to Galilee after, after this. And, but then Peter answers him and says to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, "Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus basically says, I'll see you in Galilee. After the resurrection, we're given an account in Matthew chapter 28 as well. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had appointed for them. He had told them this to show up at this mountain along the shores of Galilee. When they saw him, it says they worshipped, but some doubted. Don't you re- remember that as well? Um, we'll come back to that idea in just a minute. So this appears to be the first encounter with Jesus in Galilee. He says, go up to Galilee. There's probably multiple times that there are meetings. We're, we're told that he met with over 500 uh, of the brothers at one time as well. That probably happened up there in Galilee. Um, it certainly wouldn't have happened before Pentecost down in, in Jerusalem, uh, where, um, where, where Jesus had been um, a wanted man and then was arrested and crucified, and then we the, you know the disciples go into hiding. So th- this is probably the first time he's up in Galilee with his apostles, and, and so certainly it's kind of a reversal of sorts of that first calling of Peter and the other fishermen, Luke chapter five, we are told of, of when Jesus uh, is has been teaching, he, he uh, it's it's uh, the crowds are are gathering, and so he tells Simon Peter to let him get on his boat and go out, and then he speaks from the boat to the people. And then afterwards he he uh, says to Simon Peter, says, "Why don't you you know throw your nets in here?" and, and, and there's, there's this the, the story that echo is echoed in the passage we're and he says, you know we we fished all night. Jesus said, well, just, but then Peter says, but if you say so, we'll go ahead and do this. And so he throws the net and he pulls in and there are so many fish that so he has to call over the other boat and together they are trying to bring the, this, this gathering of fish in uh, for fear that the nets might actually break. And you might recall, what does Peter do then? What, what Peter does at that moment is he falls down before Jesus and he says, depart from me for I'm an unclean man. So at, at that moment, that, that Jesus or Peter does not want to be near this, this amazing, miraculous, wonderful teacher. But Jesus tells him, "No, follow me. I'm, I'm going to make you and your people here, your, your other men, fishers of men." So now we're back up in this, this second occurrence, where Jesus again tells them to go and, and cast their nets. Peter decides to return to his vocation, it appears appears here, at least for a night. Now, this is not, this is not, Peter is not saying, you know, there's nothing else to do today. I think I'm going to go fishing. Or, and he's not saying, it's been really a tense few days, guys. Why don't we go fishing? It's not that kind of fishing. It's not that kind of getaway kind of fishing. Peter is is probably, number one, he's got a, he's got a, take care of himself. He's got to take care of, if he has still this family nearby, or um, he's, he's got to take care of his people. And there are boats, and Jesus isn't there right now. And so let's get back to work. Let's get back to the work that we, we've done until Jesus shows up. And so he says, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm going to go, and at least for the night, I'm going to go fishing. And the others follow Peter, as, as often happens. But there was no apparent blessing at all, and they caught nothing. I'm sure it was providential. It is, of course, providential because of what happens next. Jesus calls from the shore in the early morning, asking if they have any food. And again, in the text, um, most translations might say, children, um, uh, saying to you, uh, children, have you any food? And we might think that that's strange uh, to call them children. Uh, the word is paideia, and it does mean child or children. In the, uh, but it, it, it can also have this flavor of, like, lads, do you have any food? Or or even guys, do you have any food? It's, it, it's that kind of a familiar kind of term that would be using. So um, I don't think he's speaking down to them in that way. He's just calling to them and, and asking if they have any food. And when they say no, he tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat, promising they will find some. Uh, some, uh, some commentators say that, that there was a, uh, in these fishing boats, there was a, uh, a way that the, um, uh, uh, that the oh now i 'm the tiller the tiller would come out and 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 hang to the right uh, in the to the to the starboard side and and so it would be to the right and so normally the fishing would take place on the left so it was a little bit it was a little bit strange for him to call them to to throw the nets on the right but they do so and there were so many fish that they couldn 't even draw the net in at first and John or the disciple whom Jesus loved who I think was John says says to peter like it all it's like all the pieces come together. It's the Lord. It's, it's early morning. It's, it, we don't even know how much dawn has, it, it, dawn has appeared. Um, and, and 200 cubits is about 100 yards away. So we, we have um, we're about 100 yards away to the shore, and this man calls out, uh, throw the nets to the, uh, to the right side. For some reason, they do that. They haul in this fish, and John may or may not actually be able to see that it's Jesus, but all these pieces are coming together. He says, it's the Lord. That's what goes on. And Peter then um, girds up his fishing coat and plunges into the water to swim to shore. It always bothers me. Why does Jesus, I always take my clothes off before I jump in the water. Peter puts his clothes on before he jumps in the water. What's what's going on there? The, the text is, the idea is to gird up Um, Peter will use this, this phrase in his own epistle to gird up the loins of your mind. That is to, to tie yourself up so that you can get to work and and go, um, and go for the run. So it may be that they've been out fishing. His, his garment is either off or it's just hanging loosely. And so it's, it's the fact that he girds it up, ties it up so he won't lose it as he goes swimming. I think that's really what's going on there. Um, in, in terms of, I don't think Peter was like Stupid, or something like that. But he—he's so he girds himself up, jumps in the water, and goes after, uh, s- swims for the shore. Well, again, the first time this happened, he had said that he was too much of a sinner to be with Jesus. But now, three years later, there comes a time when one realizes that one is too much of a sinner not to be with Jesus. I mean, isn't that true? Um, if, if if you have if you have the a, a spirit-given conviction of sin. If you have a spirit conviction, not, not, not you just feel bad or you feel guilty or you feel dirty because you are guilty, because you are dirty, because you have done wrong, because you have offended the Lord. But, it, but if you just feel that way, you, you don't want to be before God. You, you want to hide like Adam and Eve. But when you're given a spirit-wrought Conviction of your sin and your sinfulness. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of the sin. Now, now it's not shame that causes you to, to, to flee from Jesus. It is an absolute necessity that you run to him. You have this sense of there is nowhere else for me to go but to Jesus himself. That, that's the only place I'm going to be able to take care of this dirt. This, this tar pit that I'm in. This constant, this constant falling into disobedience before God. My only hope, I can't get myself cleaned up and go to God. I got to go to God and get cleaned up. And so, we're at, sometimes, the first time that someone hears the gospel, hears about the holiness of God, or hears about the the law that has been given to us and how we break it, and we want to run. We want to try to justify ourselves. But when God is kind... And his Holy Spirit works in your heart, in your soul, and speaks to you. You'll find that there's no place that you want to run. There's no place to run other than to Jesus himself. And so Peter dives in and swims to the shore. And so, so what happened here? We have these fishermen who, on their own, can't catch any fish. And yet with the work of Jesus, with the hand of Jesus, can't haul in all the fish that he brings to them. Well, just as the fish can't be caught by fishermen, so men cannot be caught by the fishers of men unless God draws them. And I think this is part of what John is drawing out as we see this preparation, this reformatting, this recalling of the apostles now to go out into the world. We've been learning this throughout the Gospel of John. This, this idea that, that Jesus must call, that, that we only, only, only the ones who are his hear his voice, has been all through the Gospel. We've seen it over and over again. No one comes to the light unless God draws them out of the darkness they love. Nicodemus comes at night and, tells him that he, and Jesus tells him that he must be born again by the spirit that blows where he wishes. Jesus said that no one would come to him unless the Father granted it and his own sheep hear his voice and follow and that he would draw them to himself this is all throughout the various chapters of the gospel of john and all incidents that take place only in that gospel and jesus does draw men to himself that's what he does that's look, look, take it personally for a moment are you a christian why are you a christian how did you become a christian you might be able to think, I, well, I became a Christian because some, so-and-so shared the gospel with me. I got a book. I asked a bunch of questions. I, I grew up in a home that was Christian. I heard this all my life, and, and, and now I know it's, it's mine as well. All true. All true. But ultimately, if you're a Christian, it's only for one reason. It's because Jesus drew you to himself. It's because he drew you to himself. And he did this. Here's, here's really the—it's even better news. He did this because he wanted to. He, he wanted you. He wanted you by name and called you by name. And it is because he caught you and brought you to himself. He may have used fishers of men, as I mentioned in your life, but he is the one who instructed them to cast their nets where you were. And if you're not a Christian, he may be using this very sermon or this series in John to draw you to himself. Because that's what the purpose of, or at least part of the purpose of of John's gospel is. Again, verse 31 of the previous chapter. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so you're you're going to see him tell the fishers of men to throw the nets, and they bring in this haul, and you're supposed to see that that's what God does. He draws in the ones that he wants. He uses his people to do so, but he always brings in the haul that he wants. Remember, even some of these disciples had been with Jesus, and yet we're still doubting. It's possible to be in the church, still be doubting. Is he really God? Is, does, does he really know me by name? Don't, don't I have to, aren't I just too dirty, full of shame for him? Uh, or, or is he just too hard of a judge and I can't? Or or do you hear these words? Do you hear, do you hear and see how Jesus heals and delivers and forgives and, and time and again, in every kind of incident, there isn't a person that he isn't able to transform if he so chooses. And here you are. And here you are. Is he drawing you as well is a great question. I want each one of you to consider, especially if you, like the apostles, even apostles who had been with Jesus for, for three years, it says in, in that passage in Matthew 18, they gathered at the hill of Galilee and, and, and they worshiped him, but some of them still doubted. Some of them still doubted. Faith is not something that you drum up. Um, there's a difference between questions and doubts. When you have questions about who Jesus is and what he proclaimed and, and how that works in your life, those are questions that can be good questions and and anyone can study the text. Anyone can study the stories and find the answers to those questions. They're there. Okay? That's different than doubts. That's different than doubts. Doubts Doubts are the kinds of things that come at you that you can't, there, there aren't good answers for. Like, doubts like, well, but how do I know that he knows me? What if he doesn't even know who I am? I mean, kind of look at my life. Look what's gone on in my life. How does he even know that I exist? To which a good answer to that kind of a doubt is this. Well, how do you know he doesn't? The, the best way to answer doubts and stop doubts is to just answer the, or say the question the other way. Because, because it, it's going to be in answering the questions or in delivering the gospel that, that God is going to bring faith. And faith is what removes the doubts. Faith, faith given to you by God in the preaching of the gospel, delivered by his Holy Spirit, causes you to see who Jesus is and who you are in in the light of, of, of his glory, of his holiness, of his purpose, and then to hear his voice call you. Faith is what allows you to do. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus calls his own, and Jesus calls his own effectively, and Jesus calls his own as many as he wants, and in fact, when they haul the fish in, they see there's so many large fish, and somebody counts them. There's 153. Jesus doesn't say, well, wait, wait, where are the others? And he doesn't say, I don't want some of those. The fish are hauled in, and they're they're accounted for, and it's 153, and we have spent 2,000 years trying to figure out why the 153 is in there. Why 153? Why are the 153 fish? Well, I'll tell you the reason. Here's the reason. We are told that there are 153 fish because there were 153 fish. (laughs) But I think there's something more to it. Um, Every time John, throughout his gospel here, and John, who is going to write the book of Revelation, Numbers matter. Numbers matter often. And, and, and so I, want to, I, I do want to consider something with you with regard to this 153 fish. If you were here this last spring, Pastor Wilson mes, mentioned this as well, um, and, and this is not his fanciful thinking. There, there's, a, there's a number of scholars, and it's really taken place going all the way back to Augustine, who began to kind of work through this. One of the things I think that gets missed sometimes is when you're trying to figure out if there's an importance to the 153, you have to remember how many times John uses allusions from the book of Ezekiel. I want to remind you about that. We have turned to Ezekiel several times in John's gospel. And John, will write the, as I said, will write the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is just chock full of allusions to Ezekiel. I mean, you, you really have to understand Ezekiel if you're going to understand the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is going to bring all kinds of light also to the, the book of Ezekiel. They work together, and John wrote that book. Well, as John's writing this gospel, we, we've seen tons of allusions and layers to his teachings and to the things that have happened that tie back to... Um, things that Ezekiel had prophesied. It's in this gospel, and in this gospel alone, in John's gospel, that Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You remember that. It was back in John chapter 2. You remember that sermon, right? Right. Back, to, back in chapter 2, J- Jesus turns and he says, uh, it, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, and John in, that, in his gospel says that basically everybody's scratching their head going, what are you talking about? And they said it's not until he rose from the dead that they realized he was speaking of his body, that his body, the temple. But there's all these illusions going on. It's a, an illusion not just to Jesus' body, but to the new temple that was prophesied in Ezekiel in great detail, chapters 40 through 48, the new temple that was going to be built. It's in this gospel that Jesus said that you must be born of water and the spirit. That was in chapter 3, verse 5, when he's talking to Nicodemus. You must be born of water and the spirit. None of the other gospels say that. John's does, and we find that in Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to verses 25 through 27, where Ezekiel prophesying in the future of the work of the Spirit in the new covenant says, then I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so the sprinkling of water in baptism is a sprinkling, a symbol of the sprinkling, of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, granting the Spirit's presence and dwelling in our hearts now. That's, that's just all new covenant language that Ezekiel's talking about. And, and, and Nicodemus is of the old covenant system and Jesus says to Nicodemus at night, he says to him, look, you're going to have to be born again. You're going to have to be baptized with the water and the spirit, with the water that is the spirit. That's, that's what's going to have to happen to you and all these old covenant people all the old covenant systems going away and this will be the new cleansing. This will be the new identification and my spirit will dwell in you and you will walk according to my statutes because you will love my ways because my spirit will reside in you. And, it's, and as I said earlier, it's Jesus and in this gospel that Jesus says the spirit blows where he wishes. Also to Nicodemus. The spirit, he says, is like the wind. Same word actually in Greek. The spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it wishes. You can't control it. Well, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that he said also in Ezekiel chapter 37. That, that says, that's the story. I'll remind you. That's the story where Ezekiel is told, son of man, come on out here. You see the valley of dry bones? Dead as doornails, right? I want you to preach to them. And, and he says, son of man, will, this, will these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know, which I think basically also knows, says, I, I don't know. You know. Well, then he's told to preach to him, and then we're told of the breath of God, which is the spirit of God, that comes upon and, and raises up a new Israel, raises up a new army of Israel. In this picture, this vision is again of the new covenant coming in and bringing forth from dead bones the life of the spirit in those who are born again. So pre- preached in, or John brings us up, he's the only one that does this. We've got Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. And of course, in this gospel, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that if she knew who she was speaking with, she would ask and he would have given her living water and that out of her would become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then Jesus, later on in the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 of John, stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, glorious words and promises taken directly from the book of Ezekiel, from the story of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter forty-seven. In Ezekiel chapter forty-seven. We are told the, um, of, of the story. Now we are we are in this vision of the new temple. So it's the it's forty through forty-six has been this, all the details of this new temple, and then we're told that out of this temple is going to flow. All of, the, uh, of this living water, this water that's going to flow out to the, uh, to, and get deeper and deeper the further and further it goes out until it hits the Dead Sea and, and brings the Dead Sea to life. We're going to look at it in just a minute. But what, again, you're going to say, well, what does that have to do with 153? That was great, Dave. That was great. Okay, Ezekiel's all through, all, all through the Gospel of John. I'm, I'm losing you here on the, on the point, okay? Well, as I said, this number has been molded over and twisted with all kinds of fanciful interpretations. So many, and so many poorly done, that we really are tempted to say that 153 fish simply means how many fish they hauled in, and just leave it at that. But if we keep in mind all the allusions to Ezekiel's temple, and then turn to what happens when the water flows out of that temple in Ezekiel 47, some interesting things start to connect. And it seems to make sense as Jesus is drawing his disciples back into the new vocation that he has for them. Remember, who are these apostles? Who does Paul say these apostles are? He says the apostles are are the foundation stones of the church. Everything that they say and teach becomes the foundation of our faith and practice. And everything that a preacher like me speaks to you has to be built on that foundation. We don't do any, there's no new, new stuff okay? So, so when he's speaking to these fishermen who are, going to, who are going to turn the world upside down, as it says in the book of Acts, he is, he is drawing them into the vocation of transforming the, the world through the preaching of the gospel. So think about this for a second now. Um, over and over again, The the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the sea represented the chaos of the Gentile world and the fish, the Gentiles, while the land represented Israel. And in this story of the the waters flowing out of the temple, we, we have flowing out of the temple and the prophet is told to follow this flow. I'm going to read for you. If you'd like to turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, we're going to take a look at this. Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the water. He brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, you see this? Have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. It says, when I returned along the banks of the river, there were very many trees on one side and the other also. But let's stop there just for a minute. So he goes, it's deeper and deeper. Do you see, can you see this? It gets deeper and deeper as it goes out. This, this, this is not the water of chaos, however, but a flood instead that heals. Because when the river e- reaches the sea, its waters are healed and life is restored. So, look at verse 8. Then he said to me that this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. But then it says this. It says, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it fishermen. There will be fishermen will stand by it from Engedi, that is the spring of Gedi, to En Eglam, that is the spring of Eglaam. There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea in, in the In the Hebrew mind, that's the Mediterranean. So the Dead Sea, which didn't have any fish in it, everything was dead, has now become so alive and so fruitful because of the waters flowing out of the temple that that there are so many, there's a great multitude of fish in the Dead Sea, just like the Mediterranean, in the Great Sea. Exceedingly many. Not just many, exceedingly many. Glorious fishing, apparently. So we have all this imagery of the water and the outpouring of the Spirit, and then this overflow of the living water all over. When would this Spirit be poured out? When would this Spirit be poured out that's going to flow out of the temple? Well, that was at Pentecost, when, when the church is baptized with the Holy Spirit, and people from all nations who have gathered for Pentecost Feast hear the gospel preached in their tongues, and, then, and they hear the great mighty wonders of God, it says. And it says on that day after, after Peter preaches that 3,000 were saved. And we know that Pentecost was the feast of first fruits. And they would come and they would bring their first fruits of, of the begin, of, from the first harvest with great gladness and thanksgiving and, and the hope of the promise that God was going to bring even a greater, a, a greater um, harvest throughout the rest of the year. That was, that was the mindset of Pentecost. 3,000 are brought in that day from, from various nations and there's a promise that this is going out to all who are called, it says, Peter says at the end of his message. To all who are called, wherever the net's thrown, whoever Jesus wants to gather, this is just the beginning, he says. And at Pentecost, if you look at Acts chapter 2, there are 17 nations or people groups listed. This was the first catch. Now here's where you have to do something that we're, well, sort of, we're not, we don't think about doing. But the, the, in the ancient world, there was a practice of encoding numbers in names called gematria. And they, and they could do this in ways we, we don't easily because they use the same symbols for letters and for numbers. Okay, so that's weird. But wait, could you imagine trying to explain to somebody, I don't know, 200 years ago, what you're doing with all those numbers in this little box of this thing called Sudoku? What, do you, what are you doing? Why do you, why do you keep moving numbers around all over the place? Cause it's fun. It's, it's always fun to play with numbers, and they used to play with numbers and names. The reason they would play with numbers and names is because, as opposed to us, we have we have um, Arabic letters. Am I getting that right? We don't be sorry. Latin Roman letters and Arabic numerals. Okay. So if I I, I want to say one, I can spell it out, um, or I can just use an Arabic. Um, Numeral. But um, all, any of you who have, have been learning uh, Roman numerals, for instance, the reason you have Roman numerals is because they didn't have numerals that were anything different than the letters. So you had to learn that the I was 1 and the X was 10 and the V was 5, and that's the way it was done. In Hebrew, in Hebrew is the same way. There were not, there were not um, numerals, actually in Greek as well. But in Hebrew, there, there was a way of, of encoding somebody's name with a number. Um, So, the first nine letters in the Hebrew alphabet alphabet, corresponded to the numbers 1 through 9. The next nine were used for numbers 10 through 90, and the last five were used for numbers 100 through 400. It's not that hard of a game to play, if you're used to it. You take the letters, the three letters, that make up the Hebrew word Geti, and it equals 17. (coughs) You take the, the, um, uh, the, the Hebrew letters for the word Agliam, or Agliam, and it, and it adds up to 153. But there's more to it than just that. 17, or 153, is the triangular of 17. Now, you don't, hang on. That's your, what do you mean by triangular? All of you know what triangular means. All of you do. How many of you have bowled? How many of you ever bowled? Okay, what's the triangular of four? Four, three, two, one. It's 10. Right? Okay, how many of you play pool? Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand. <laughs> how many of you play pool? What's a triangular of five? Five, four, three, two, one. Eight balls in the middle. Eight balls in the middle because it's halfway between 1 and 15. Triangular of five is 15. Well, see, this is easy. What's a triangular of 17? 17, 16, 15, 14, 153. They did that. They did that. That's the way they would see these things. Well, John's writing after, after Pentecost has taken place and after the accounting of these 17 nations and the, these different languages for these people groups that, that the gospel went out to. And so, is he referring to that they, that they, these great fishermen who bring in a great multitude, they start at the spring of 17 and they end at the spring of 153, the fullness of that seventeen. Like, what's the fullness of 17? What's the fullness of 4 when you're bowling? It's 10. What's the fullness of 5? If, if you're doing all of it, you've got 15 when you're done. What's the fullness of 17? Where's it going? It's going to 153. <coughs> so, the triangular of 17 is 153 and the 17 nations receiving the spirit of pentecost are the celebration of the first fruits. And so the 153 fish could represent the totality of the nations and peoples of the world that will be brought into the kingdom by means of these apostles and the church they grow over time. In John's in John's revelation, the great multitude there he says is a number that no one can count and came from all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, Revelation 7. The promise to Abraham was that through his seed, all the peoples would be blessed, or all the nations, all the people groups would be blessed. And we are told that God has highly exalted Jesus, and at his name, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Philippians 2. So the plan and the promise is the worldwide transformation of salvation of all the nations, even if you don't want to buy that 153 ties back to it. Well, you do need to see is what, G, what, what John has been saying over and over again throughout his gospel. Look to Ezekiel and see the promises of the worldwide conquest, of, of the taking of all the nations. Look to Ezekiel and see that my new covenant is going to be far more efficient and effective than the old covenant administration. Look to Ezekiel and see the, the, all of the images that John is going to drag into his book of Revelation to explain to us the establishment of the new covenant people and the new church look, look and see what God has been promising. So triangular isn't, uh, it it isn't that what's been, it's not, it's not just the the play with the name triangular. What I want you to see is the fullness, the fullness of the work of salvation. And now I want you to see the fullness of your salvation. We're going to go the other way. Instead of 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, I want you to see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Or we're going to see, we're going to see the fullness that comes out of you. Imagine, You have been saved, you who have been saved, how many people, because you have been saved, have been impacted for the gospel? How many times have you been used (coughs) to witness in word and deed that Jesus is Lord, and that that the person you're talking to, if they would call out to him and believe on his name, they'd be saved? Or how many people have you been used by God to encourage them in their faith, those who might be doubting? that Jesus is Lord, and that they can find full forgiveness in him, and that he will give them eternal life. This is the fullness of your salvation. Or, Or consider one church, Eastside Evangelical Fellowship, seven families hanging in there and deciding to go from a Bible study to church. Have they had an impact anywhere? Well, here we are. This is what God does. This is what God does with first fruits. What about generations? What about generations? So you, you are raising a family and you're believing the promises of God for your children and your children walk with the Lord and then your children's children are walking with the Lord and now you're praying and believing God for your great-grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren. Some of you have great-grandchildren here who are walking with the Lord already. Because of your, because of your faithfulness, because you were a great fisherman, you know, sometimes I think um, it's not so much that we become fishers of men in that we become really great at fishing. I, I, I like to think of myself more like being a net. We're just a net. The great fisherman is the one who is using us and throwing us because he knows whether we should be thrown to the left side or the right side. I don't know. But he throws us into all kinds of circumstances in all kinds of places in all kinds of what looks to us like deep dark waters and he's hauling fish in. And he's using you. He's using us. That's what's going on. I think that's what John wants the, these disciples who might be tempted to just think it's all over. Let's go back to fishing to see, oh no, we've just begun boys, lads. You have anything to eat? Throw your nets to the right side. I think that's what's going on. You or we, you individually or we are sent to be fishers of men, or as I said, maybe just nets. And He's going to drag in a net full. How many? Are we told anywhere how many? Well, how full of the knowledge of the Lord will the earth be? We're told that it will be as full as the sea is wet with water. That's how full, that's how effective his fishing is going to be. So we finish this passage with a great meal, a great, glorious breakfast meal that's going to continue, and we'll look at the rest of it next time. But here, we see Jesus says, come and eat breakfast. I've taught you something now. You're going to need to think about this for a while. Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish, bread and fish again. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus had earlier washed the disciples' feet, and now, serving again, he invites them to a breakfast he has prepared. Are you like Jesus? Washing and feeding his people. The church is to commune with Jesus, be washed by him, and fed by him. But this whole passage also points us to the great commission of the church, and that she is to be used by God to draw all men to himself. Washed, instructed, and fed by Jesus, here in the Lord's Day service, we are then sent as ambassadors of his kingdom into the world. This fallen world is a world that has been purchased by the Son and promised to the Son by the Father. Psalm 2, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Let us pray. Glorious and good Father, your Church has been casting nets just like the apostles as you fulfill your purposes for this world. The gospel has gone forth to all the continents and touched many, many peoples. And here we are, on another continent, in another language, another people. Encourage us to believe and to continue to pursue the work of bringing your gospel to our neighbors and friends. May your spirit flow to all the world as you have promised. You've been so kind, so kind to save us. Save more, Lord. Save others. That the choir lofts overflow all over the world with those who praise your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.